Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, friends. Welcome back. This episode has been sponsored by our generous patrons over on patreon.com forward slash Red Hills Rancher. Check the show notes for a link to that. For this week, I have somebody that I've been trying to get on the show for quite a while, and several of you have also requested me to interview this guest. So after we got our email situation uh, straightened around, I guess, and a little bit of time zone confusion, I managed to make a connection with Fred Provenza and sit down and have a great conversation. So here we go. Thanks for joining me. How are you today? I'm doing well, bro. It's wonderful to be here with you. Been looking forward to this. It, it's great to have you here, and I'm glad we finally, you know, got to got a chance to meet face to face and talk for a few minutes down in Fort Worth a couple of weeks ago. That was that was really awesome. It's always a privilege to be able to hear you talk, do one of your keynote addresses, and something somebody told me the other day when uh, I brought up that I was going to be doing this interview with you was just let him go because he loves to chase rabbit holes. So just let him go chase rabbit holes that he can't chase when he's, when he's got, you know, just a one hour time slot to fill. So I, I hope we'll, we'll find a couple of those today. Well, I'm, I'm sure we will Brian. between you and I will, we'll find some to chase down. So I, I've been hearing your name for a long time. My dad has been a, a big fan of your work for a long time. Um, and I'll have to admit, I just started into nourishment a few days ago, and I'm an audiobook consumer. So one of the big questions I have is, when are you going to narrate your own audiobooks? You know, your timing actually couldn't be better on that. <laughs> I, uh, when the pandemic started, the folks at Chelsea Greens asked me if I would be interested in doing an audio book. And that's your publisher? Uh, what's it? Yes, a pub, yeah, Chelsea Green is a publisher. And there's uh, Fern Bradley Marshall is the lady I worked with that, that I edited with. And she, she raised the idea. And at the time, I don't know why, but it didn't sound, um, it didn't sound so interesting to me. But I didn't say no at all. And then as time went on, I think in part, I was working on, on a couple other projects and didn't feel like I had the time. But as time went on, uh, sounded like more and more of a good idea. And uh, so finally got into it and uh, put together a narrative for, it's an adaptation of the book, actually. The book, I think, um, I was visiting with Ben Trollinger, who's, who's editing this, uh, this narration. I think he was saying the book's about 186,000 words. This narration is 75,000 words. So I about cut the book in half, basically. Okay. And uh, to try to to try to 
stick with the big points, to try to make, stick with the main themes that are in the book, not, not bog it down in too much detail. There's, there's a lot of particulars that are in the book, in nourishment, and uh, you know, a lot of crossing the T's and dotting the I's, and uh, a lot of reference material that, that's cited in there. So this, this audio rendition is, is uh, much more big picture in that sense. Ben was, uh, was very happy with the narration. In fact, he's going to send, well, I just saw in the email, he just sent me his comments on it. And he's wanting me to have that back to him in about 10 days. He said, it's gonna be no problem. So we're, we're, we're moving ahead on, that audio book will be out fairly soon, actually. I'm, and this is stuff you can delete if you don't want to talk about. But you know, I, what I'm trying to con convince those guys to do is let's put music with it. Let's have a couple different people, uh, me maybe doing some of the, the narration, but a real live narr narrator doing some of it. And let's, let's make it come alive. Let's, let's use those different mediums to make it come alive. And uh, Ben was really, really receptive today to doing that. Now, whether or not the people that say yes on those or no on those kind of things, go for it, we'll see. But I think there's so many ways to make things come alive and music is powerful. And I think having more than one voice in there can be powerful if it's done, done in a good way. So yep. that's a lot more probably than what you wanted on, on, uh, on that book, but that's, that's where we're going. And I've, I'm excited about it now. I'm excited. I, I haven't looked at the script since I turned it over. I just set it aside so I'll be able to look with fresh eyes here over the next week to 10 days as I go through Ben's comments. And uh, yeah, so we're working on it. And, and I think I liked also, you know, there's some points. There's five sections to the book. Um, dining with chains, dancing with the wisdom of the body. Uh, savoring the artist's palette, grappling with uncertainty, fading into mystery. And then there's a last part that's dining on earth, the visitor's reflections. I really, what I wanted to write the book about are those last sections, grappling with uncertainty, fading into mystery, and a visitor's reflections on, on being on this planet. But I felt like the needed the first three sections to set the stage for those last sections. This audiobook is way more balanced in terms of, of uh, really hitting those last sections pretty hard. There, there I think, uh, there to me, well, I, I think all of the books is worthwhile. Of course, what would I say? But I think it's all, all worthwhile, the, the, the uh, those first three sections, but I think without those last three sections, it's not the same book. And the balance that's in there now with those those three sections, the, I think. Uh, and I was very very happy to hear Ben's comments without me egging him on in any way about the the balance and and the shift in balance that's come from the book that you're reading and this audio version of the book. So. I want to know why you, what drove you to write the book, but before we get into that, so you're, you're Dr. Fred Provenza from the university of Utah, right? Utah state university, Utah state. Ah, 
Yeah, so, University yeah. of Utah's in in Salt Lake City, and that's a common common mistake that people make. Which Utah State's in Logan. It's the state land grant college. Okay, okay. Thanks yeah. for clearing that up. So, how did you get where you're at? Like, where did you come from, and what what has been your life? Like, tell me your life story. <laughs> Briefly, <laughs> it doesn't take long. It's a been no, I've really been blessed, I think. But my wife asked me an interesting question a week or so ago, a couple of weeks ago. She said, "Did you have expectations of your life? Did you have any expectations of your life?" And I could truly tell her, "No, I didn't have any expectations at all." What happened for me was just following things that fascinated me. And from when I was a teeny little kid, I loved wild things. If it moved, <laughs> insect, fish, bird, mammal, I was just mesmerized by it. Absolutely just loved, loved wild creatures. I, so I used to love to catch everything. I wanted to to catch it all, you know? So I remember all the bees and moths and stuff that would land on the flowers that my mother grew in around the place and I'd catch, catch them, catch them, catch them. And I remember one time my dear old grandmother who was about five feet tall when she was stretched out, she was babysitting with us one time and somehow I let all those things go in the house. And so poor old Graham mm -hmm. was up climbing on the cabinets all over the place. Graham, look, there's one over there, catch that. Anyway, you know, I was just fascinated by, by wild things, animals especially. Then, uh, you know, when it came time to go to college, it made sense to get into wildlife biology. Not that I knew anything about it, I really didn't, but wildlife sounded like something that uh, I, I loved. And when I was a sophomore, in college at Colorado State University, I took a class in plant taxonomy. And that, that just brought a world alive to me that I'd never seen before. I'd been around my mother's, you know, she loved to grow plants and so forth, but I'd never actually really looked at wild plants, grasses, forbs, shrubs growing on rangelands until I took that class. We were required to collect 50 plant species and identify them and so forth. And that I'm saying those two things because that interest in wild creatures and then that interest in plants led me just naturally. I love, you know, why do animals eat what they eat? That was really as deep as it went for me was, uh, you know, just, just being fascinated by, by that. And then, you know, pursuing that over 40 years from a research standpoint that moved from why do they eat what they eat and where, why do they go where they go to trying to understand that? How, how come they do that? Why do they do that? And that led to all the studies of nutritional wisdom of the body and the different ways that that works, ability to select uh, for nutritional needs as well as for medicines and so forth. All that just evolved. And then to kind of wind around where, where you started on that, um, when I retired 13 years ago from Utah State University, my wife and I moved to the backwoods of Colorado. We were 12 miles in on graveled road, uh, living that- Living the dream. Yeah, we were, honestly. <laughs> we always, from when we first met 50, over 50 years ago, we thought, wouldn't it be cool 
to build your own cabin and live in the woods. We both shared that dream, but we never thought, you know, that that would actually, well, it did happen. And we were living the dream. And, uh, but part of when we got there to the backwoods, it was like, boy, I can be like a kid again. I can, you know, I'm not, I don't want to study anything anymore. I've been there, done that. It was fantastic, but I just want to watch. I just want to sit here and watch all these plants and animals. There was every kind of wild creature from bobcats and lynx to mountain lions to all the, you know, pronghorns, mule deer, elk, moose, turkeys, on and on and on. It was just cool to be back there. But I thought, you know, it would be a really nice time. And it helped with the transition of being in the middle of everything, all this activity. All of a sudden, you're 12 miles in, graveled roads, you're living alone. If there are people around, they don't know who you are, couldn't care less, actually. And better, Pretty better much. Away. Yeah, you know, don't want to be too noisy, nosy. But anyway, it was great to, to time to reflect and just to sit down and, and try to write down if I was to summarize all those things that we were doing and so forth. And so that, you know, that's a little bit about where the interest began. However, that starts in a person. It was just in me. And then uh, I ended up winding around to the book and, and writing the, the book. And I'll add one other part. So during all the years that we were studying processes, these flavor feedback relationships, these biochemically mediated flavor feedback relationships between cells and organ systems in the palate, social learning starting in utero and early in life of what and what not to eat, where and where not to go, what's a predator, what's not a predator. And then how plant diversity, those are kind of the three things that we really studied, how plant diversity influences all of that stuff. I was always thinking about humans. And a lot of times when we devise studies, we'd be thinking, well, how do we, you know, how do we respond to this or that? And then, you know, well, does a goat or a sheep or a cow do the same thing? So we were always thinking about that, but I had never dived into the human literature on those topics. And I thought, you know, this would be a great chance to just see what we studied. And then do people study those same things in people? Is there a literature related to, to us? And so that was a great opportunity to try, you know, the, the, the literature on humans is, is like the alpha and the omega. Huh? There's no beginning and no end. It, <laughs> it doesn't agree. You can find whatever you want to find literally out there in that literature. So but it was a chance to really familiarize myself and to try in the book to, to talk not only about goats and sheep and cows and wild and bison and wild kind of creatures, but to talk about humans in that same breath as well. And uh, I, it was fun to do that. It was really fun to do that. And I go back to that expectations and what Sue asked, did you have expectations? No. And I certainly would have never thought that an interest in why a cow or a goat eats what it eats would lead to, to talking about humans. You know, it just, just all, all evolved, really. And it's that simple question. Why do animals eat what they eat? And we probably still don't have an answer to it. You know, you could look at it. I can look at one of my cows eating on a willow tree and going, why does that cow eat that willow tree? Well, she wants some tannins that are in it. That, that's my easy answer. Okay, well, why does she want the tannins? How does she know that the tannins that she needs today are in that plant today? And then if she eats them, she'll be happy. How does she know that? Like, those are the questions. Like, 
every one of these questions that we start to challenge something that's in established knowledge opens up a whole wide world of other questions. And like you were saying, you originally started off by studying cows and wildlife and how they were making their nutritional choices through the day. And that led you to look at people. And I, I'm really under the impression from talking to doctors and folks in the medical field and just, you know, people that, that we know in the regenerative sphere that um, most doctors get about like a two day class on nutrition, like, and it kind of sums up to, well, you put things in this end and it comes out the other end, right? I've always really wondered, and not necessarily on humans, but on cows, like, okay, so if we can analyze everything going in, dry matter, nutrient balance, you know, carbohydrates, sugars, and everything, and then we can catch the manure and we can catch the urine, why can't we compare what's coming in the front side to what's coming out the backside and see what the cow actually used? Yes, well, and there's a lot of studies that do that too, Brian, back in the day, you know, of, of nutrient utilization and so forth. There, there have been a lot of work on digestion balance kind of trials. And you can imagine that, that there, uh, anytime you get into trials on nutrition, it gets very complex, very, very quickly, as you were, as you were alluding to, um, because I often think, you know, you have to choose what are you going to feed that? What are you going to feed that cow? And there you've already uh, limited possibilities uh, compared to say on a rangeland setting where maybe an animal has 50, 75 different foods that they'll sample and so forth. And so I'm not saying that to throw cold water or be negative, but whether you're studying a human or a cow or whatever it is, um, those, those the, puts animals in a box. It puts animals in a box and you're only going to be able to, to make, draw conclusions based on on the, the particulars of the, the study that you did. And so that, that ends up being a, uh, it's a huge limitation compared to when animals are able to free range, across, like I love your background there, across, a, across, across a, an area like that, each one able to select what its body, I would argue what its body needs. And, uh, but that's where, you're so right what you say. So willow and tannin, certainly we know willows have tannins. They have salicylic acid, which we call the aspirin, right, yeah. as well. And so maybe the cow has a headache that day. It's learned. You know, we showed that animals can learn to self-medicate for multiple kinds of maladies that like us with, if we have a headache, we'll take an aspirin. If we have a stomach ache, we'll take Pepto-Bismol. We were showing that, uh, that animals can learn to self-medicate for multiple different kinds of maladies. Uh, and so I think your comment's really appropriate. We, when I think of all the work that we did over 40 years of studying, studying, studying these things, I think it points in a direction. It points in a direction, but do we know every last, uh, every last bit about that? Not at all, how we really don't. I think what it leads to is something like we're doing now, a good, it can have an interesting conversation about all those things, you know? Well, you think of the complexity, for instance, in meat, we're, we're doing a, a bunch of studies of meat right now and how, 
how the diversity of plants in the diet, what I would refer to, to as the phytochemical complexity, all these different compounds that are in plants, the, the hundreds, if not thousands, you know, get into the meat. And meat itself can have 45,000 different compounds. Just imagine that and imagine that the body knows what to do with that. It's a wisdom. You know, when we were first starting our, our research, um, and it, for me, it came out of watching animals and watching animals do strange things. Goats eating wood rat houses, goats avoiding eating twigs that we thought were most nutritious and eating stuff that we thought was, it's like, why are they doing that? And I always gave them credit. I always thought, you know, they know there's something going on that we don't know. And so then we, we would study that. But when we started formally then into, into the research that occupied 40 some years, I, I remember writing papers and saying, you know, somehow creatures had to be able to figure this out. They were, we, our ancestors included, we, we were making a living long before there were medical doctors or pharmacists or biochemists or all these things. You know, what we're trying to do is simply, I think if we think of it from a humility standpoint, we're just trying to understand the wisdom that's in these systems and trying to think, and the whole regen movement, I think regenerative ag movement that I really appreciate, I think trying to say, well, there is this wisdom in nature and in natural systems. And we'd probably do well to try to, to understand and appreciate and then to manage based on, on some of that knowledge and wisdom. So I've been thinking about this for a long time. Part of the problem that we're having in in regenerative agriculture with explaining how some of these natural systems work and and how building you know soil biome and you know soil microbial communities how that works is because it's extremely different difficult to study it in a lab like studying complexity in a lab is extremely hard because in a lab science what you're trying to do is you're trying to eliminate all the variables that you can and just get to just get to a control and then tweak a couple of variables to see how it responds. But in a natural system with livestock and native and, and plants outside, you have zero control. Like it, your control kind of comes down to where you want those livestock to be like that. That's the tool that I can affect. And then I just have to observe, um, you know, how, how my livestock are interacting with the grass and what they're eating. I see what they're eating. If there's no more in the pasture, okay, maybe it's time to put you in another pasture because you want to eat that and there's no, no more left. But I guess what I'm getting at is studying complexity. So, you know, we, we, we kind of touched on nutritional about the balance between in and out and what the animal or organism is using. And, you know, to some extent that's done, that's been done. There's feed trials. Okay. We can feed them this, 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 and this, and they'll gain this much a day. Okay. That's great. That has absolutely nothing to do with anything that happens in the real world. Um, and it kind of tagging a conversation I was having with uh, with my hired hand, Keaton, the other day. The show ring, it's all fake. And to some extent, a lot of science. Oh, boy, I just I just dug myself. I just jumped in a hole there. A lot of science. It's difficult to apply in the real world in a natural system because there's so many variables. 
Yes, and you didn't dig yourself into a hole at all, Brian. You're no, you're trying. You're grappling with, and that's the whole point of that that section of the book, grappling with uncertainty. When you get there, a nourishment, and uh, going back to the audio uh, adaptation of the book, I was very happy to hear what Ben was saying. How well that came across. How all these issues, and we just take. Let's just take human nutrition, which was what Ben was talking about today. And what that section on grappling with uncertainty gets into is, you know, every time you turn around, they're changing the advice, right? Are eggs good for you or bad for you? Is coffee good for you or bad for you? Is, you know, on and on and on and on. And uh, that grappling with uncertainty really explores what you're attempting to explore right now, the complexity, the complexity of it all and how, you know, you start with, for one, no two individuals have ever been alike on this planet. That's amazing if you start to think about that. If you just, that no two humans, no two cows, no two anything, chipmunks, no two grass plants. And it has to do with the relationship between genes and gene expression, this whole field of epigenetics and ever-changing environments. And so there's no way anything that that's amazing to me to think about that you know to nature of people often say nature of horse a vacuum i say nature of horse sameness nature loves diversity and uh and that's why all those weeds grow up in the monocrop fields nature, well, it is. <laughs> nature it wants some diversity it absolutely is it absolutely is and you can work yourself to to death uh, or spray yourself to, to death or however you want to, but, but nature, nature abhors, abhors sameness. That, it's amazing. So, so you run a study, and we made a point of this the last maybe, I don't know, 10, 15 years of my career of always pointing out, you know, because in research, as you're saying, just to back up a second, you have treat, treatments, say you have two treatments, and you're going to look, are the meat, are the average, does the average animal do something different in one treatment versus another treatment? But what, what's so obvious is that within your treatment groups, even if you have statistically significant differences, the individuals are going to vary like crazy within those groups. You're going to see a great amount of variation. So we made a point always to, to, to highlight the, the variation and that these individuals aren't doing the same things. I think back to the original work with goats, where we were using them as mobile pruning machines down in southern Utah to prune this shrub called blackbrush. Prune it in the, in the winter, it stimulates all this new growth that we knew based on lab analyses was more nutritious, higher in energy, protein, minerals, and so forth, but the goats didn't want to eat it. When I say the goats didn't, that means 80 to 90% of the goats in any one trial, 10, per, 10 to 20% thought it was wonderful, you know? So that all that has implications for how nature works, right? Is a plant poisonous or not poisonous? Uh, larkspur, for instance, is one, it's a big issue with, with livestock losses. People at the poisonous plants lab looked at five different breeds of cattle and there was more variation within a breed than there were among across the different breeds in terms of their ability to to tolerate the the alkaloids that are in larkspur. So, I, I was gonna I was gonna say something about that about you know that there's more differentiation from one end of the Angus breed to the other than there is between the average of all the breeds. 
Yes, absolutely. And it's a really key point. That's one of the reasons that um, I'm thinking of a paper I just reviewed out of Australia for a nutrition journal where they're talking about how important uh, choices of different protein sources are, how important that is to the diet. Now that we're talking about changing climates and, you know, we should all be eating, quote, plant-based diets and so forth. Yeah, and they're making yeah, the no. argument that... Um, that diversity of protein sources is very, is very important. And one of my recommendations on that paper, it's, I think it's a really good paper. Uh, you know, they're talking about that, that meat is an important part of this as, as well, meat and dairy kind of products. But, you know, we made that argument forever from a livestock standpoint, because no two individuals are alike, Diversity enables individuality. It enables individuals to meet their needs and to grow and produce. And so that's, and that we are going down rabbit holes because I'm thinking back here, you know, to where we were started. But, you know, that alone complicates any study you want to do. Then, you, as you were saying, you need to decide, well, which subset of foods are you going to feed? And automatically, you've reduced the universe of what's possible. And so you draw conclusions but, um, you know, an, an individual that's, that's foraging for itself has so many choices and those choices and those combination of choices matter hugely in terms of, of health. I remember one of your comments made me think back. You know, you always start out naive and uh, I, I'm sure, as you were saying, still, we're really naive. You see, that's the danger. You start thinking you know a little bit, but... You, you don't know what you don't know. Well, exactly. You don't know what you don't know. And I love Einstein's equation. Ego equals one divided by knowledge. Huh? The, more, <laughs> the more you learn. And that's what I, I think about as we went along. You know, we were doing all those studies the more we did, the more you realize everything is hooked to everything else. Whatever you're doing is linked to something else. Any choice you make, um, you know, so you're running a trial to see can, can cattle uh, select for phosphorus if they're deficient in phosphorus, for example. Well, you've got to really think a lot, this is obvious, but you've got to think a lot about what's the basal diet? What, what am I feeding them outside of that? And that that's, you know, so you, you want to make sure they're de deficient in phosphorus and so forth. But there, there are nuances to that that really struck me over the years. We weren't thinking about this or that or the other thing that was no doubt influencing the outcome of our studies. And we got, we, we, uh, we got hit with that several times and in interesting ways that were just revelatory. It's like, oh my gosh, yeah, we should have been thinking about that. We weren't thinking about that. That was influencing the outcome. If we change that, now we get a different outcome to our study. So we were continually learning, but um, I remember one, one study, <clears throat> we were working with sheep and we were asking a question about phosphorus deficiency and could they, uh, they self-select for phosphorus? And we couldn't get the group that was on the phosphorus deficient diet. We were monitoring their blood phosphorus levels to see if they were deficient. And I couldn't get their levels to drop. And we started really paying attention to what was going on. They were sticking their heads through the wire panels um, and eating the feces of sheep that were in adjacent pens that were on the phosphorus adequate diet. So they were getting their phosphorus from, 
You know, and we'd never seen that. We'd never seen sheep eating feces at Green Canyon. We'd never seen them digging soil and eating it until we made them deficient. You just and freaked then, out every sheep guy that listens to this podcast. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, and those are things that that you just think, oh, that's that's amazing. That's really interesting. And, uh, you know, they, they were becoming deficient. It caused them to try unusual things. And that that's a classic deal when... You know, bone chewing, for instance, in, in cattle, that's a good sign that they are deficient in phosphorus. They're, they're not just kind of whacked out or something. And uh, that wouldn't be a calcium problem. Well, it can be it could be calcium or, or phosphorus, both, you know, and ratios of phosphorus to calcium and so forth. But some of the really neat work uh, did tie it to did tie that deficit to phosphorus. But it could be calcium, too, Brian, just as you're saying, you know, okay. well, I mean, it, it, if a cow is chewing on a bone, I'd think that, well, bones are mostly calcium. That would be my first thought. But yeah, yeah. I haven't studied nutrition for my of, whole life. Also a good source of phosphorus as well. And so, um, but, you know, you, the further along we went, you just realize, and we, we were really interested in the role that mother plays in food selection. And uh it's amazing to watch the relationship between mother and young after birth. And so we, the first studies were just looking at if we trained mom to eat one food and avoid another food, would she train her lambs? And, uh, and, and it's, it's so obvious and so amazing when you see that, it, you know, you and I are talking now, we're using words as our medium, but when you actually see something like that, we had a road show actually that went, traveled around for a while where we went, I remember we went over to uh, Nevada, and uh, A.G. Smith actually came to that to that one of those presentations where we were showing our trained sheep. But He's a it really was great to get people's attention because it would just blow their mind when you'd see them doing things, eating things you'd never thought they'd eat, avoiding things that you think this is ice cream plant, and then we'd simply say, "Well, how do you, how many ways can you think that you could get?" a sheep to do those kind of things or a cow or whatever it is. But um, yeah, so we'd start with, with mother and we did a lot of studies like that. Then we started thinking, well, you know, maybe cues in mother's milk, mom's eating foods and flavors get in. So then we started studying milk and then we started thinking, well, you know, that fetus, that fetal taste system's fully functional during the last trimester of gestation. Maybe they're even starting to learn in the womb. And so it's, it's that kind of thing that I, I'm getting more specific on where you'd see, man, you know, and then you start thinking epigenetically, well, probably the mother of those animals and the grandmother and the great grandmother is all these linkages in time and space. And uh, you appreciate what you're saying about the complexity of the whole thing and uh, and how little we probably do know about the wisdom that's in nature and in all these creatures. Can you, I, we talk about epigenetics a lot on, on this podcast, and I don't know if we've ever really kind of broken it down into what it means or what that concept kind of, kind of relates to. Could you do that for us? Sure. I'll go down a rabbit hole here for you too. Brian. Feet first. <laughs> you know, so 
I remember writing a review paper when I was a young faculty member and we, we, I was writing in there and I didn't have much basis for this, but I said experiences early in life cause neurological, morphological and physiological changes in animals. They change how they are neurologically, morphologically, physiologically and behaviorally. It just made sense, but I, didn't, I couldn't cite a ton of things. So as we went along and we were doing these experiences early in life, we would start to um, sacrifice animals and we'd look at their organ systems. We'd look at rumen development, papilla development in the rumen. What's the size of the rumen? We'd look at livers and liver, liver sizes and function. Uh, other friends looked at kidneys and kidney function. And these experiences were changing all of those things. For instance, let's get a little specific. And then I'll, uh, some of the work we did with, with the goats on blackbrush, <clears throat> we ran a study where we reared goats either on a high quality diet, um, alfalfa hay and so forth, versus just born and reared down on blackbrush. And then we looked at when we brought the animals that were reared on the higher quality diet in another environment, when we brought them to the black brush, we, we ran trials over, over a couple of months. We looked at how much black brush they would eat. Um, we looked at how their weight changed or not. And really the goats that had experience ate two and a half times more black brush than the naive goats. Um, they did better weight wise. When we gave all the goats a choice between alfalfa, which the, the one goats were familiar with, and blackbrush, the goats that were born and raised on blackbrush ate, ate much more blackbrush, meal in, meal out, even if alfalfa was offered ad libitum to them. The other goats totally abandoned the blackbrush. So we were having these, these differences, and we were looking at organ systems and how they responded. Let me give you. Um, Another example, uh, and then I'll let's wind it back. We have some friends in Australia who are looking at uh, out in Western Australia. They have a shrub called saltbrush that dominates some of their landscapes, and they were looking at uh, rearing, rearing animals on those saltbrush range, range lands versus uh, grass grass range lands, and they were looking in utero at those kind of uh, what the experience did. And they showed that the, the sheep that were reared on saltbrush in utero, that were exposed in utero, uh, ate significantly more saltbrush. They drank less water. They were able to, to perform much better on those landscapes than the animals that were naive to it. Then they started looking at kidney, kidney development, kidney function, and they were showing that had all changed for those animals. So I uh, was working with a person was near the end of my career, the beginning of his career, he was trained in epigenetics. And he knew about our research. He was very familiar with the work we'd done. And, and I was talking to him. Uh, we were going to watch a movie actually titled Ghost in Your Genes. It's about, it's a Nova special about epigenetics. It's a fabulous, fabulous, fabulous. If you want people to get a primer on epigenetics, uh, watch Ghost in Your Genes. It's, it's just, it's, it's riveting to me. And we were going to watch that. And I said, you know, he was talking about the work we did. And I said, yeah, we never really studied epigenetics. And he said, yes, you did. And I really appreciated his comment because he understood that that's what we were studying, how genes, um, how genes get expressed as a function of, 
of the environment that an animal is in during, uh, during conception early in life. And when I said we weren't studying epigenetics, what I meant is we weren't looking at the specific suites of genes that were being upregulated or downregulated. Um, but I very much appreciated that he understood that what we were looking at was the outcome of that. When we looked at, at um, different organ systems in the body and when we looked at behaviors of animals, we were looking at that gene expression and how that turns out in terms of, and it, it was striking when you, you know, those goats, the goats that were reared on blackbrush, when we cut them open and looked inside, their rumens were enormous. They were they were absolutely enormous. And why? You, you think about it, and you think if you've got a really poor quality forage, the best thing you can do is get a lot of it in there to digest, right? If you've got the goats that were reared on the higher quality diet, they had little tiny rumens because they didn't need a big rumen to to digest and meet their needs. The quality okay. was high enough. So let's. What are we, what are you saying when you talk about high quality forage? Cause in my mind, high quality forage is something that's, that's going to be energy intensive to grow, grow and transport. Like, yes. like we're, we're talking about like a sorghum Sudan or some wheat, you know, corn or rye or something, right? Not, yes. not native pasture, native plants. Yeah, and when, when I say, let, let's do clarify that, when I say high quality on that black brush study, it, it's relative. The black brush is a very poor quality, very, very fibrous, poorly digestible, um, not, not good source of energy or protein or minerals, you know. And what we were comparing that with then was the animals that were reared on a, on a high quality alfalfa hay, uh, grass hay, ration is what the and probably we had a little grain it's been a long long time ago since we did that we probably supplemented them with a little bit of grain as well so you know they were just on a way higher plane of nutrition compared to those poor goats that were down there eking out and living on that on the black brush okay um so what what epigenetic changes would you expect to see oh let me back up so how does the body's natural nutritional wisdom deal with these substances that now that you know we're eating as people and sometimes you know we're passing on to our livestock these substances that short circuit the body's ability to tell you when it's had enough and to induce you know the feeling of satiety and, and satisfaction yeah that's that raises a really huge point and uh one can think about that point from the standpoint of, of livestock that are offered, um, let's say on rangeland or on pasture, a diverse array of different plant species versus say livestock that are on a monoculture. So they don't have much choice in terms of the foods they get or in a feedlot where they're fed a total mixed ration. Those would be Three, three kind of degrees that I think about when it comes to, to livestock. From a human standpoint, I think about <clears throat> ultra processed foods as one end of the spectrum and then wholesome foods at the other end of, of the spectrum. And I think one of the things that struck me 
as much as any, if we, we stay on the human for just a minute here, we can go back to the livestock. But, and I think Mark Shaxter did a wonderful job of just nailing this topic in his book, The, the Dorito Effect. And he makes the point that, and for those of us old enough to, to have experienced this, we remember that two things happened more or less simultaneously. You know, the, the flavors of wholesome foods, vegetables, the varieties of different vegetables, fruits, meats as well, became blander during the last, what, let's say 40, 50 years. At the same time, these ultra processed foods became irresistible. And so we really, we disincentivized real foods because they don't taste good anymore. And we, the food industry really finished, figured out how to incentivize these ultra processed foods and flavorings and with artificial flavorings and all that they do, they really figured out how to do that. And so it ended us up in a situation where this wisdom of the body that's, that's been with us over the eons got hijacked, basically. You know, if you have real foods, one of the points that, that I emphasize so much is that when a body is exposed to really nutritious foods, um, we like the flavors of those foods because they're good for us. That, that cells and organ systems, including the microbiome of the body, uh, simply feeding back through these hormones and neurotransmitters and peptides and so forth to change our liking for the food as a function of need. And when we're on wholesome foods that are grown on, on, uh, on good soils and, and good varieties of foods, you know, phytochemically and biochemically rich varieties, that, that richness of flavor is our body cells and organ systems telling us this is good. We like this. On the other hand, well, so many of the foods nowadays look great in the store, but they have very little flavor at all. And uh, it's you know, all for salt and sugar. Yeah, for anyone who grows their own food, Sue and I have done that for for our, our lifetime. <clears throat> you know, when 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 we hit the hit the dead of winter and we don't have the stuff that we can pick fresh anymore, it, it's it's a rougher time for us. You know, we miss that because the the flavors are, are great. And uh, same, same thing can be said with, with meat as well. Um, that, uh, that topic that we're, we're doing a lot of study on nowadays, and uh, I think in the next decade or so, we're gonna le learn a tremendous amount about how the diversity of plants in the diets of livestock really has an influence on the phytochemical and biochemical richness of meat and dairy products. You know, that's something that people originally, for a long time, certainly we looked at ratios of omega-3 to omega-6 fatty acids and CLAs, but this idea that phytochemicals actually get into the meat and fat and that they can influence and that they can be there in concentrations that are probably meaningful, that's something that wasn't so much on the radar screen. So it's a, it's a whole area that that's open to explore um, nowadays from, from a metabolomic standpoint where you can look at the diversity of compounds that are in meat and dairy, but also from uh, 
from a human feeding trial standpoint, which gets into some of the complexity we were talking about earlier, but, but you know, what, what I'm looking forward to seeing is, uh, is studies where, where, for instance, you compare three meals. Let's just say we compare three meals that we feed to a human. Okay. We have one that's grown best regen kind of practices that you can find. And there's some neat review papers are just coming out now that you, you may have seen too, Brian, that uh, talking about paired, paired farms across the country and showing that the, the, the vegetables that were grown on those are, are much much higher in nutrients as well as these phytochemicals compared to so so let's say we we have we have a meal where you've got vegetables and meat that's that's grown on really phytochemically rich wholesome soils and so forth and you compare that with a conventional meal that has vegetables and it has meat but the vegetables are coming from the grocery store they have no flavor to them you you eat them because you know we've told you they look pretty yeah, I'm pretty, and he told you should eat them. So, so you eat them, and and the meat's coming from animals that are coming through the feedlot. And then let's compare that those two meals with an ultra processed meal, a kind of Western diet. And let's look at at these markers of health that people like to look at. Um, I just reviewed another paper, a different paper that was was comparing. Um, these alternative meat meat products that are plant plant based with uh, with meat from animals in uh, coming from a feedlot, and they expected that the plant based meats there'd be be far less inflammation following a meal, inflammatory markers. There wasn't, and they, the researchers were quite quite surprised by that. But so you know, a person could look at inflammation. People may or may not realize that anytime we eat a meal, a meal, there's an inflammatory response in our body. And the, the more wholesome the foods, the less the inflammatory response is. So one could look at markers of inflammation like these researchers did. They looked at 90 some markers. And, uh, and there are many other markers that, that people who are, are way into this uh, would recommend that, that we could look at. But to me, those kind of studies would be revealing in terms of the linkages between um, healthy soils, the plants that are grown on those soils, the animals that, that forage on healthy mixes of, of diverse mixes of plants, and then our human health as well. So nutrient density, we're talking about nutrient density in the foods that we eat, like and, and my, my current paradigm in my head is, is meat. We're talking about nutrient density of meat. So break it down. Is there a difference in the nutrient density profile, the, you know, the omega-6 to omega-3 ratio between holistically raised, regeneratively grazed, grass-fed beef, and typical feedlot beef? Yes, yes. And, you know, when it comes to ratios of omega-3 to omega-6 fatty acids, which historically people argue we're closer to one-to-one -one with all the processed foods that we've got nowadays. You know, bo both omega-3 and omega-6, and this is background, you, you know, the, but just to make clear, both omega-3 and omega-6 are essential fatty acids. We need them, our body needs them. But when we get 
a very high ratio of omega-6 to omega-3, it can interfere with the absorption of omega-3. So they argue we need more of a balance and that um, when we're on all these ultra-processed foods, they have a lot of omega-6s. So um, back to the meat, animals that, that are on grain-fed diets have much higher levels of omega-6s relative to omega-3s compared to animals that are uh, foraging on diverse mixtures of plant species. That'll come to be much more of a one-to-one -one ratio. And that, that, that's meaningful. And higher levels of, of conjugated linoleic acid, for instance, in animals that are foraging on... on uh, What's that do on, for the body? Versus, oh, it's good for health and for heart health and, and so forth. Um, but... What, what's, what we're finding is certainly the work that we're doing is, is supporting those uh, that past kind of findings, but we're also finding much, much higher levels of, of various kinds of phytochemicals that, that are antioxidants, anti-inflammatory, they, they, they promote health and they're in meaningful amounts and just way higher levels when animals are foraging on diverse mixtures of plant species, either on pasture or on rangeland. And let me add one qualifier here too. You know, I often talk about on rangelands, animals can eat as many as 50, 75 plant species in a day, and maybe three to five make up the bulk of the diet, but they'll pick a little bit here and a little bit there. And that's probably really meaningful in terms of, of their, their health. But you know, there's studies going on in New Zealand nowadays where they're feeding uh, four to six plant species that are really complementary of one another and seeing huge benefits. So I, I add that because it's not like, well, you know, if your plant, if your pasture doesn't have 50 species, you're probably going nowhere. It's, it's to say, you know, diversity and complementarities of different species, you can get some amazing, uh, amazing results, even with, with three to five uh, six, seven different plant species. Good stuff. And so when you're saying phytochemicals, in my mind, I'm also hearing flavonoids and terpenes, those, you know, those compounds that give the, that, that give the food a little bit of different flavors, like, and probably what most people, the term that most people would come up with when you, they hear grass fed is gamey. And it's not gamey. Like, I don't think it's gamey. The flavors I get in my mouth from grass-fed meat, like I, it, my mind ties those to plants. Like when I'm eating that meat, I can almost see in my head what plants that cow had a lot of for the last six months before she went to uh, before she went to go meet her date at freezer camp. I love that you said that because actually, if you. <laughs> If you get really familiar with, with what your animals are eating and the different compounds that they contain, and you know, that's a process and not every people don't have to do that, but, but it, it comes alive in that way that you're talking about. It makes me think of, of uh, you know, I used to love to hunt blue grouse uh, all my life. And when Sue and I were living in Utah, we used to hunt them throughout the fall and late into the fall, early in the fall, they're eating really diverse mixtures of different kind of leaves and fruits and so forth on, on grasses, forbs, shrubs. And, and But as it gets into say late November, they, they, 
the availability of those isn't so much anymore and they move into the conifer trees and they start to eat the needles from those trees. And actually a lot's known about grouse and they're very selective of the trees they go into because the conifer needles are high in terpenes. So the challenge is those terpenes, if they eat too much, they can be toxic to the grouse. So the grouse has to find trees that are a good mix between the protein and energy in the tree and the amount of terpene in the tree. And that's gonna vary across the environment. So the grouse are doing that, but when you shoot a grouse that time of year, it's got a subtle, subtle hint of terpene. It's just exactly what you're talking about, you know? You can if, taste that little piney. Yes, yes, yes. And it's not strong. It's not overwhelming, but, but definitely you can taste it, you know? And so I remember the first time I hunted them late into the fall and I was thinking that, uh, do I like this or don't I like this? I'm not sure it was different. You know, it was different from the way grouse normally tasted. And I make that point because I think I totally agree with you on the gamey, and I think our palates have become dumbed down. One thing that feedlots are able to do to say some words for uh, pro the feedlot, you know, that they're very efficient in terms of producing animals. They've reduced the cost so that many people are able to have meat, which is, is huge benefit. And another thing they've done is to make things pretty uniform, right? You, you fairly well know what the meat's gonna taste like that, that you're getting. Makes me think of my friend, Dave Pratt, when he talks about <laughs> in Ranching for Profit, when he's talking about some of these kind of things, he's talking about McDonald's and he says, you may hate McDonald's, but you know what you're gonna get. You know <laughs> what you're gonna get every time you go there. Same with the, with the feedlot. One of the things that, that I think people need to start to appreciate is what you're saying this notion of terroir that when I was in France several years ago, going with the shepherds up to their different places and looking at how they produce their milk and also their meat, each, each one was unique because of the, the landscape that they, they lived in and where, the way their animals foraged. And so when you go down to the market, they may say, well, I really like Gascon's cheese. I like the flavors of his cheese better than Michel. <laughs> so that was just a, an acquired preference, right? For, but they appreciated, they appreciated that flavor of the land that you were talking about, that that was, and I think in a way, um, what, what happens with us is our palates have become dumbed down. I, worked with people from around the globe over the years I was at Utah State. And a lot of times I said, your meat has no flavor. You, your meat has no, <laughs> we don't like your meat. It has no flavor. And what they were saying is what you, you're saying is that you get, you know, when they're eating this rich array of plants, you get hints of different tones or I, I'm not a, a food flavor taster kind of guy, but you get all these different tones and things that are in that meat as a function. And if you come to appreciate that and then to appreciate that those those compounds can have health benefits in your body, then that that can change change your whole view of of, of what's going on with with the meat. So how do you feel about fake meat? What what what's the nutritional value of fake meat to the human body? Yeah, you know, I I just for me, it's, it's just one more ultra-processed food, one more ultra-processed food. Uh, the paper I mentioned that I, that I just reviewed. Yeah, 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 yeah. You were talking about inflammation. 
and fake meat. Let's let's go back there, chase that inflammation. Yeah, well, they they were, you know, they they were trying to look at is there value in in the plant-based meats. And I don't want to be the paper isn't out yet, and it's a follow-up to one that that was published. But they they uh, you know, their hypothesis, and they say this, their hypothesis was that the plant-based meats there'd be lower lower markers of inflammation. But out of these 92 markers they looked at, or 96, I forget, 92, 96, uh, there were only four that showed any difference whatsoever. And in both cases, for the meat from, from the feedlot as well as the, the fake meat, they both were showing a, a rise in terms of, of inflammation. Both were So they said, you know, we, we saw no difference here. It, it, our hypothesis wasn't, wasn't correct. And then they went into um, some, you know, explanations for, for why that, that was the case. And uh, I very much appreciated what they were saying and was able to, to point out points that we're making right now that, um, you know, this nutrient density, how the food's raised, where, where it's raised, all those things are going to be very important to, to be considering in terms of inflammation and, and what's happening with the body. And, you know, so in, in their case, the, the plants, and I, I won't say too much more about the particulars, but you know, so where did those plants come from? What, 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 how were the plants raised that, that were made on the, on the meat? All those things, you know, it's not trivial in my mind what we're talking about. What uh, people like to say, we are what we eat and what, what we eat eats eats and all those kind of things. Well, you know, let, let's really make that real. Let, let's, let's get down to what is that. And, and as we're saying and alluding to, and my, my friend and colleague, and I think you may have met him at the, at the grass-fed exchange, Stefan von Vliet, but Stefan's really running and gunning. And there's just a world of, of studies that can be done to try to, to explore, explore this area. I think that the, it's really a worthwhile area of research, even given, as we were saying, that, you know, there's always limitations on research, but if you, if you get into an area and you explore it well enough and you're thinking holistically about it, you're, you're not bogged down in the weeds, I think there can be some really nice contributions that get made. And I think in this area of diet diversity for animals uh, and, uh, and humans as well, and what that can do in terms of our health, that's, uh, that's a huge area, but I think very important. And then, as we're saying, the beauty to me is that it, it links things holistically. It's not just about, you know, well, what did that cow eat? It's about where did that come from? What are the soils? I like to say, and I sound like a broken record, but I, I think plants dirt, turn dirt into soil and diverse mixtures of plants turn soil into homes, grocery stores, and pharmacies for creatures below and above ground. I, to me, that sums up so much of the work that's going on. You can unpack all that, but if you want to look at life below ground, from the microorganisms to the to the macro fauna that's below ground, um, you know that's what plants do. It gives them homes, places to live, grocery stores, the nutrients they need, and pharmacies for them to to keep themselves healthy when they when they get sick or need to 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 um, 
Yeah, to self-medicate. And it's the same thing for creatures above ground, of course, as well. And if we tie into that, then, you know, I know, I know that can sound strange. And, uh, you know, if you're a medical doctor, going back to what you were talking about earlier, and you've been, you know, you've had years and years and years of in-depth uh, biochemistry, physiology, and on and on and on. It may, I think sometimes, uh, or a nutritionist who's, who's done that, it may be hard to, to step back and think, well, you know, bodies, bodies had to know how to do all this stuff. And then how can we enable that? Because it, there weren't such things as medical doctors or pharmacists, as I've said, or any of those things back in the day. So, and I know when we were first starting our research years ago, I wrote papers ar arguing that when we were first launching in and trying to make the case, this is worth studying, you know, probably you know, the stuff you, that, you know, well, how could it have been 10, 20,000, 50,000 years ago, how were they getting along without any of that? Well, they must, there must be this knowledge. And how does that work? How is that working? Like mushrooms. It's like what? Two million kinds of mushrooms. Almost all are edible once. Very, very few are edible twice. How'd we figure that out? Yeah, you know, I think that's one of the most fascinating things on, on the planet. That's, you talk about an interesting topic. It makes me think, and I'll wind around. There's studies done in ants, and they had poison taster ants. And they were a subset of the population that tasted these different things to see if they were toxic or not. Maybe we had poison taster humans. No, but, you know, that... And that there really are, there were studies of poison taster ants, and I talk about it in, in nourishment. But, you know, that, I think that's fascinating. How, how did people figure all that stuff out over the eons? I have a friend, Mike, Mike Huffman, who's very well known around the world for his work on self-medication in primates. And uh, he's just done fascinating studies of, of the ability, how that works and so forth. Uh, but he talks about in some of that he, what he's written, and he's worked a lot with indigenous peoples in different parts of the, of the world, and about how one of the ways they learned about um, medicinal plants is by watching animals, wild animals that were sick, watching them and watching what they ate and then sampling, you know, trying some of that when they were in, in certain uh, kinds of sicknesses. It's that that's to me, that's just a fascinating, fascinating topic. I think that would be I swear I'm kind of done writing papers and stuff, but I think that that would be worth a paper of to try to get into how innovation and how how that's all happened. And I'm sure people have written papers. I I think of those. Um, there's a video I like to show of an oyster catcher. It's down near a body of water and has a piece of bread. It's throwing the bread. It's standing on the shore throws the bread in, grabs the bread, throws the bread in the water, grabs the bread, throws, does it over and over again. And, and you're watching that. And then all of a sudden, wham, it got a, a fish comes out. It gets a fish. It's fishing. It learned to fish. So how did the oyster catcher learn to fish? You know, it's a, those watching are a fisherman. I, yeah, I don't know. You know, and that's where 
goats eating wood rat houses. You know, why do goats eat wood rat houses? That, that was, I was so fortunate to be able to see some of those things happening down there in, when we were working with the goats in Southern Utah. We had six, in this first study, we had six pastures set up, 15 goats on each pasture. And goats in one pasture started to eat these wood rat houses. And, uh, you know, I often tease people, well, maybe the Einstein of the goat world was in that pasture and it figured out that, you know, if we eat these wood rat houses, but why were they doing that? Inside those houses are different rooms. And one of the rooms is the bathroom. And that bathroom is vegetation that's soaked in urine. Well, that was a non-protein source of nitrogen. And that's if there's one thing that you could supplement with down there on that poor quality roughage, that poor quality shrub blackbrush, it would be provide them with a protein supplement to stimulate microbial populations in the rumen and to help them to better digest that, that poor quality forage. And by golly, those goats, um, those goats over the three months we had them on there lost way less weight than all the other goats and those other five. You know, I can't say that they gained a huge amount of weight. It's just that they they fared far better than, than the goats that that didn't do that. And over three, three winters with 18 different groups of goats, that was the only group ever figured that out. Now, if we'd have wanted all the other goats to be doing that, we'd have just had to take and experienced, you know, the goats that had learned to do that, put them in the other pastures like that. They'd have all been doing that. And going back to the oyster catcher, I'm betting that other oyster catchers figured out how to fish watching that oyster catcher fish. But I'm bouncing around your, the fascinating topic that you raise of how, you know, how did, how do creatures in general and humans in particular how did we figure out all these different things? And, you know, all these secondary compounds that, that were historically in plants and serving multiple, multiple functional roles for plants that we ended up using fossil fuels to, to do those roles, um, whether it's herbicides or pesticides or on and on. Plants, plants were doing that. Well, people historically figured out ways to, um, to, to cook plants, to work with plants that reduce the concentrations of those compounds in plants. So that, to me, that was like, you know, that was, that was really clever that they figured out some of them, cassava, for instance, that could, could be outright toxic. They learned that, you know, if you treat it with water and uh, boil it and different things, that sort of cooking can be so valuable, but they, they figured ways to deal with those with those compounds in plants and to be able to use them like how many people got sick before we figured out rhubarb yeah exactly <laughs> you know that that's exactly right and rhubarb's loaded with oxalates i'm not that uh, we need to get into all these different compounds that are in plants but uh but that's right that's exactly right yeah so like i i have a question down here about eating plant-based protein and i guess that kind of that was kind of supposed to be rolled in there with that uh, that dialogue about fake meat and what i'm i guess where i'm going at with this is epigenetic changes whether we're talking about people cattle sheep goats whatever you know from 
generations of let's call it a high energy diet or a refined foods diet are we heading for i'll just come out and say it are we heading for a wreck in our human genome because of what we've been eating like the industrialized westernized standard american diet is that going to cause could that cause some problems down the line for us as as human beings epigenetically Yes, I think it already has. I think the wreck's already here, actually, you know, when you look at the statistics and I'm not trying to place shame or blame or anything else in that sense. It's kind of just the luck of the draw, however you, you end up on some of this. But, you know, realizing that these these kind of changes begin in utero early in life, if you're, there is really a rich human literature on these kind of changes and uh, mothers who put on excess weight during pregnancy, mothers who are obese when they're pregnant, mothers who are uh, eating these ultra processed diets, you know, their poor child's born already well on its way to metabolic syndrome and type two diabetes. Uh, it's just, you know, it, it, the wreck is already here when you look at the statistics and when you look at that, you know, I, I can't help but think when I was growing up and sometimes look at pictures of people back in those days, they were so skinny. It's like they were emaciated. You just look at it and you think, whoa. And then you think nowadays when you're in town or wherever you are and you think, oh my gosh, we, we have just so gone gone down that other track. Now, the beauty of epigenetics is that it, it can change. Genes can be turned on and off. And so, um, you know, if, if we get people off of the, off of the ultra-processed diets and, uh, and back on to wholesome foods, and that's where the regenerative movement and all these, you know, the, the wholesome foods have to taste good, right? They have to be good for you. You can't get it. And I, reviewing the literature on, uh, the human literature when I was writing the book, it was it was so revealing and kind of humorous to, you know, all the ways they think of to try to make make vegetables more tasty to to young kids. <laughs> and the one way, you know, the one way that was never talked about, it's like, well, let's let's get really good varieties and let's grow them on great soils and let's let's make stuff that let's let's try to shop locally. Because when you pick stuff and ship it, you know you're losing a lot of a lot of the of the nutrient density and phytochemical richness. And in a way, it's kind of how do we go back to the to the old ways in ways that 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 can make us healthy? And you think of the cost to society. I I deleted that from nourishment when I was writing the book. I had a whole chapter about plant wisdom and then. Uh, and then costs, what, weaving that in with cost to society, the costs are just enormous in terms of the, the monetary costs of, of obesity and diet-related diseases. Uh, it, it, it's an enormous cost that we're paying on all of that. But that is the. Well, beauty that's okay. Of we'll just we'll just have health care for all. We'll just, we'll just get healthcare right. For you know everybody. which which, and we know getting into those boy, just break the system. There's no not enough money on the planet to deal to deal with that. So it's kind of, and that's where I appreciate what you're doing, Brian, and all this kind of, you know, it's how, how do we get back? How do we get back to some of those, 
those old ways of appreciating uh, growing growing your own food, growing grow, purchasing locally from people who are, you know, maybe you can't grow a cow or, or even your own eggs, but trying to to get local and trying to, uh, if you can, even grow grow a few things yourself. Just, um, I think all that that is very, very health promoting. We we have some chickens here, Sue's. Um, my wife's got some chickens, and uh, we we're. It's a long story, and I really won't go down that rabbit hole. But we shouldn't have them in this subdivision. We're able to work it then, <laughs> so we've got, but. They don't want them just free ranging across our property, so we'll let them out a couple times a day. And when people from who have no background in anything we're talking about are here, and we say you want to come with us and we're doing the cheek, they love it. They just, you know, you would think they'd be bored stiff, but they think it's cool just watching those chickens go picking this and that, and and then the grasshoppers when they get out going after the grasshoppers and just kind of, you know, it's kind of mesmerizing and fascinating for them to just to. To, to watch that. And it makes me think, you know, that's something that's kind of deep inside of us, I think, in, in a way of, and they say it's relaxing, it's relaxing doing that. And you think, yeah, you know, it, it is, it, it is just, um, and we've got two ducks. That's a long story to it, I won't go into, but here's the point I wanna make, is those ducks, and I never realized this, they are so tuned into the sky the slightest thing, and it can be so minute, you can't say it, but when you see them tilt their head, you know there's gonna, there's something up there. And a lot of times it's an avian predator of one sort or not, or it could be a jet that's so tiny, but it's, and the chicken, you know, so now- The, the ducks are the watch, early warning system for the chickens. They are, that, uh, well said. And, and the chickens watch the ducks, we watch the ducks, and the minute they tilt, they, they never miss. They never, ever miss. You may have a hard time to see it, but they, they never miss. And if the ducks start to run, boy, the chickens are on the run too for shelter. And it's just, I don't know, for me, that kind of stuff is, is fascinating. And then it goes, you know, and so we built, we built them this palace, this chicken palace, and we, we put a roost, a place in there for them to roost. And it's so interesting to see how they de they decide that that roost isn't where they want to roost. They want to be in the rafters, you know? And so just <laughs> sounds about right. Little things, but yeah, but it's, it's about, you know, animals aren't machines. Genes aren't destiny. Creatures are figuring things out, but you have to take the time to, to slow down to just watch them, whether it's cows out on your landscape or sheep or goats or chickens or uh, oyster catchers figuring out how to fish or whatever it is, creatures are, are clever. And back, uh, not to beat it to death, but the fact that genes are being expressed up and down regulated gives hope because it's like, it's not just, ironclad into the genome that that's it we're we're bound to be an obese species no we can change those things you know but that means changing changing the whole system and that's the i think the power of that whole regenerative movement in terms of health from the ground up building health from the ground up it's one of the strangest things about modern society is that we have poor people or people in poverty that are obese. Like never before has that has that condition existed in human history until just 
maybe the last 20 years. That's right. That's absolutely the case. And, you know, when I was in the human literature reading on those things, people, you know, because people often argue, well, you know, it, it costs less to buy ultra processed food. But even in the short term, it costs you it costs you more. But in the long term, then, as we're as we're saying, boy, the cost to, to all of us, society is all of us. The costs are, are absolutely enormous. But uh, You'll see as you go further into nourishment, where I talk about some of those things and some very interesting examples that some of the people that, that write about humans and study humans have have, uh, have used to illustrate points about no, it 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 it's far more costly to uh, to be eating the ultra processed food on ma many many levels. But there again, too, um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of one example with strawberry fruit gushers, strawberry fruit gushers, which are basically sugar with, with an artificial strawberry flavor. There's not a hint of strawberry. sugar with sugar with sugar water inside. That's the, that's that's it. And there's not a hint of a strawberry in that. And they're talking then about about the difference in, in nutritional quality and what you're getting for those. But again, I think of strawberries that, that we buy, and a lot of times they just are so lacking in flavor compared to ones like we're growing, growing here now that are coming on. And it's that whole idea of how do, we, how do we raise food for people? And it seems like that's where the local becomes so important, raise food for people that's really nutrient dense, phytochemically rich from the vegetables to the fruits to the meats that we eat and really get people hooked on hooked on really good wholesome foods and then uh, you know uh, it was interesting to me to read in the anthropological literature about how back in the day before a woman be got pregnant they really paid very close attention to the diet she was on and the diet that the father was on, the, 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 the father-to-be was on before they ever conceived. And it's like, boy, those people knew. They knew the importance of that in terms of uh, they didn't know epigenetics or any of that, you know, but they, they, they understood that that's important. That's important to health. And uh, they knew it. They just didn't have a word for it. That's right. That's right. You know, and I think this, this wholesome eating and stuff, um, bodies knew that and peoples knew that and it became parts of, parts of the culture. I often think that in the little town of Salida where I grew up, um, all those people that came over from Italy, the, the grandparents and great grandparents, they, they still had those traditions. They grew big gardens. They oftentimes had chickens. They, many of them raise a pig and stuff and that they 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 didn't let that go they knew the value of uh, really wholesome foods and growing them on on rich soils and, uh, but then when i think to my parents generation and then to my uh, generation and on from that we really lost that as a part of, of cultures those people took great pride i think they could grow gardens that was amazing you know with short growing seasons and that and they they took great pride in in the gardens they grew and the, the animals they raised and so forth. You got any theories as to why we lost that knowledge or why we decided to forget or quit practicing? You know, it's a good question. Probably multiple 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 causes on that. I think, you know, I remember when the first fast food place opened up in the little town of Salida. I mean, it's so 
common now, right? That you don't even think twice, but there was a time when all that was just getting started. And uh, I think I think the, the industrialization of the of all those processes um, and the things like Mark talks about in the Dorito effect just gradually, gradually, gradually took us away from away from raising our own foods. I think also, uh, as I've read, you know, we, we, we thought that with all the, the modern technology and everything that, that we would work, work less actually, right? We, we wouldn't have to work as much, but that was the promise, wasn't it? That was the promise. But now I think we're, we're running so fast. And I often think, you know, both husband and wives end up needing to work to try to make a living for the family. And so those things really take a backseat then. Who has time at the end of the day to come home and tend your garden and cook a home, a home cooked meal and so forth? All that, I think multiple factors have, have caused that to, to disappear over time. And, you know, it, it happens incrementally. So nobody notices all of a sudden, you know, you've gone from here to your clear over here. And how did we get here? Like you're saying. I feel like we've been tricked into living on too high of an energy budget. I agree with you, Brian. I agree with you. And you know, when that struck me more than anything else was uh, I got on the faculty at Utah State back in 1981 and uh, we, we built a house. We didn't have a lot of money. And so we, you know, we were, we, did, we didn't have anything extra. We had two kids and we didn't have, have, have any extra money for certain. And so after we got this house, house built, I finished the basement, took the time to finish the basement. And I had a lot, had a lot in, in that house. And we decided to, to move to Australia for a year. And we, we decided we'd sell the house. We need to sell a house and all our belongings. And uh, the market dropped at that time. And so we, we, we got more than we owed on the house, but really took a hit in terms of all the work that I'd done on that house. After didn't we, get the equity you thought you had. Yeah, didn't get the equity. And so we moved in. We had six months before we, we left for Australia and we moved into a rental house that was really what I would consider kind of a dump, you know, it, compared to the house, it was kind of a dump. But... I was in that house about two weeks, maybe a month at the most. And I thought, you know, I love this dump. I freaking love this dump. I don't have any worries about my big house payment anymore. My family's with me. I thought I didn't own that house. That house owned me. Absolutely, that house owned me. Then we moved to Australia into an even kind of a worse of a dump. Um, old old cast iron stove to cook on like was in my grandmother's house and stuff but after that year you know and we loved it we loved it and after that year we 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 thought a lot about what you you were saying we were we're on this high energy budget but I thought we thought we don't need to do that so we bought we bought a piece of ground two and a half three acres whatever it was we were able to grow steer and a couple of lambs, huge gardens, and we built a very modest house. That was the key, because we thought, you know, 
Is that when he came back or was that in Australia? When we came back, yeah, when we came back from Australia and we, we just thought, you know, it depends how fast you want to run. If you want to run like, run with the rats as fast as you can run on the high energy budget, just keep buying all this materialistic stuff, huh? Have, have a ton of cars, have big house, have all that stuff and boy, you'll... But we thought, no, we're, we're, we're done with that. We paid that house off in, in 10 years. Right on. Yeah. So, you know, I'm not trying to sound like the big whatever, but I mean, it's just, it, it was a realization to us that, you know, you don't have to, you could, you don't have to have big of anything. You can have modest, you can have, and not that the house that we built was big, but it's just, uh, yeah. It's just, but, I totally agree with what you're saying. We're on such a high energy budget and we have all these things that, that we just have to have, right. That just keep you running so fast. And, uh, you know, and I think if uh, trying to raise a family nowadays too, with all the, all the, all the things from cell phones to you name it, that, the, that the tyranny uh, of the school activity calendar. I think yes. is what somebody put it once. Oh, absolutely. You know, and, and then you're caught, you know, of how do you, how do you do that in ways so your kids don't feel like you're, they're abused, but, you know, try, try to raise them in a way that they're not, not in these, not in these craziness. Okay. Yeah. And none of that leads to happiness. That, that's the thing. Huh? None of that leads to happiness. My somewhat controversial viewpoint on education is that's the parent's job and by delegating the raising and education of of our children to the state to the government um you know people talk about homeschooling as an experiment and i think they have it completely backwards homeschooling is not the experiment homeschooling has been going on for thousands of years under maybe different names, but the experiment is, is government run schooling. And I don't think it's working. You know, that's absolutely the case. It's the same kind of, same kind of story for the wisdom of the body, right? That's what, that education was going on forever in terms of how to live in an environment, right? And it was the family and the extended families uh, that we, we used to live in, that our ancestors lived in, families, extended families, clans, and so forth. And so, yeah, that was, that's where the teaching was taking place. Well, hopefully, as we go forward in time, we'll start rediscovering and, and reapplying that generational and ancient wisdom. Uh, and I hope we can do it before we get too far down this high energy path that we're on. Yeah, that's what I often often think about and wonder about. I, I think I think that's exactly. Ho hopefully, that can happen. Um, yeah, absolutely, absolutely the case. I, you know, the other thing I think about a lot too is in that process of moving toward the the education in schools and so forth. We moved away from the hands-on part. That that's most people learn so much better with hands-on, the personal experience of something. And uh, I often think we had a program going the last ten years. I was at Utah State called Behave, 
and uh, we we were uh, had had many different kinds of activities, but one of them was working with kids in schools and getting them out uh, working in gardens, hands on in gardens during the during the spring spring term of the year, and then they'd go go off for summer, and then the fall bringing them back and showing. But what a marvelous place. You can teach everything there, huh? You can get as detailed as you want, but it's real. And they loved it. They loved getting out and they loved planting the seeds and talking about soil. And, you know, in this teaspoon of soil, there's a kajillion different, you know, microorganisms. But it, it so, you know, if you, you have the knowledge that you want to convey, whether it's at whatever level, um, out in the real world is, is such a holistic way to do that. It's, it's really, uh, and you could talk about all facets of systems when you're out there in the, out there on a landscape. And it's uh, to the degree that we've gotten away from that, I think we, we end up doing a disservice to, to our species. I'd agree. We, uh, we got to kind of wrap this up, Fred. Let me make one other comment on that. I agree. Okay. And it ties back to with one other thing that you were saying. I'm thinking of, of uh, and it's, it's in the book, and it has to do trying to think where it was. It doesn't matter where, where it was in Africa, but it, it was about indigenous peoples. And the one group had stuck with the indigenous ways. So their knowledge of the 250 plants that were out there and all the different uses of those plants, not just in food and medicine, but in building and everything under the sun, they had kept that. Another tribe had, had lost that. The, the kids had become much more westernized. And this extended drought hit, like 10-year drought. The tribe that had stuck with the old ways, they weathered the drought really nicely. The other tribe didn't at all because they'd let all that knowledge go. They, they had lost that knowledge. And the people who were writing about that said that the sad thing was the tribe that had kept that knowledge, their children now were becoming really enamored with the allure of the, of the Western ways and, you know, they were, wasn't so so interesting and so forth to be out there knowing all the plants and the animals and so forth and so on and so they were lamenting that they were going to lose that that kind of knowledge as well and then when the next the next uh, big big drought hit or whatever they they were going to be in as sad a shape as the as the other tribes so anyway that's kind of linking back with some of the things that you were saying and that that knowledge, huh? that knowledge of, of um, knowledge of the environments. And, and uh, I think often we're members of nature's communities. What we do to them, we do to ourselves. And by nurturing them, we nurture ourselves, but we've gotten so far away from that. And I think it's wonderful what you're doing to try to get people linked back in with that with that kind of knowledge, Brian. I'll say as a kind of a last last remark, I appreciate very much. Well, thanks for that, Fred. I think I think though a lot of what I'm doing is just you know helping connect folks like you with a wider audience and having some deeper conversation and and promoting getting people to ask questions. That's what I want people to do. Ask the freaking questions. Maybe don't always come ask me all of them, <laughs> but like, there's a lot of important questions 
that we just don't ask as a society? Oh, absolutely the case. And I think it's because, <clears throat> at least on the topics that we were on today, we've become so detached from that. Who would even think to, who would even think to ask any of those questions? Also, if you can stimulate a little bit of thought and, and so forth, it's, that's, then that gets conversations going. And with where, you know, with all the challenges nowadays, ecologically, economically, socially, politically, you know, some of that knowledge like um, that comes from those farming and ranching and feed on the ground ways, that's, that's, that's dang important. I, <clears throat> I'm going to say one more thing. And then, I, <laughs> you know, when I was at, at Utah State, we used to have wonderful conversations in, in the undergrad class that I was teaching about this, where we would dialogue about these kind of, of things. And uh, there's a, a movie I used to like to show titled Power of Community, and it was about Cuba. And it was about what happened to Cuba when the Soviet Union collapsed, when they fell. Uh, Cuba was absolutely dependent on the Soviet Union for oil. And all of a sudden, that there was none. And they were an economy in free fall. And it was an amazingly uplifting story about how people working together were able to, I mean, it didn't matter how educated you were or whether, you know, how many PhDs or medical degrees or whatever you had, people became, became regenerative farmers in a hurry across that country because they had to, it's like, okay, now we're back to basics. Now we're back to, to what, what really sustains you. And uh, it, it was a, it was, I, it was I think great, that it was this thing do you talk about it it's, it sounds like it should be required reading for every US citizen in the world in 2022 no honestly it is it's because it, and it just showed you know it showed the power of people pulling together too that people actually faced with that challenge they they work together rather than pulling apart but also, you know, no more fossil fuels, so you couldn't rely on any of the things we use, rely on in industrial ag to, to do it. You had to become regenerative, absolutely. It, it, was, it, was, it was wonderful to show that and to talk about that and to say, you know, um, this, this could happen. Don't, don't think this can't happen here in this country or any country. These kind of things can happen. And, uh, trying to get get all of us thinking about well how how what would you do and how how can you how could we work together i i'm thinking of the there's a good quote at the beginning of the movie the big short you know the movie i'm talking about oh i love love the big short i loved it so i i think the quote is the most dangerous thing isn't what you think you know is going to happen it's the thing that you know for certain can't or something to that effect yes like no i yep Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, there's no way this will ever fail. It's too big to fail. It's too big to fail. Well, those are famous last words, I think. Those are famous last words. And it reminds me <laughs> of a very short book titled Immoderate Greatness, Why Civilizations Fail. And that, that's absolutely it. It's the, the hubris and the, you know, I was exposed to some of that too, as I went along in different departments and stuff that were, were fabulous you know world famous and you 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 get thinking you're 
you know, you get the hubris and thinking that that you're you're too big to fail or too good, you know, where that could never happen to us. And boy, you're on your way. You're on your way. You know, it's just and that that title's great. Immoderate greatness. Why civilizations fail. Well, I'll make sure I get that in the show notes, along with every other book. And I think uh, Ghost in Your Genes, you said that was uh, on Netflix. It probably is. I'm not sure. It's a Nova special. I'll find it and make sure the link is in the show notes. Oh, I tell you, that's, I don't know how many times I've watched that, that movie and it's as relevant today. It's, it's, it's been out, I don't know, maybe 15 years, but it's as relevant today as ever. And it's just, um, it's just gripping when you think about that and they do a great job of explaining, you know, going more into and interviewing um, state-of-the-art researchers in those days. And epigenetics influences every facet of our life. We were talking a little bit more about foods and th- those kind of things and diet-related issues, but um, everything from how calm you are as, as an adult to uh, you know probably any facet of personality you want to talk about, all those things, and they make that come alive. They just make it come alive through all the examples they use. And it's focused on humans, of course. Um, so that that makes it very, very interesting for people to watch and, and understand. Great stuff. Fred, I really, really appreciate your time today. I'm sorry about the confusion with, <laughs> with time zone. I'll take, I'll own all of that. So don't, don't worry about it. No. You don't have to own it. It's me. I'm old person, but I'm old. and I look on the when when you brought that up, and I look on the thing right there. It shows two o'clock, starting at two. But so much we had said three o'clock, so I'm thinking three, thinking three. Yeah. But you know what? I've so enjoyed, honest to goodness. I'm sorry it took us so long to get get to here, but I absolutely have 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 relished our, our conversation today. Great kind of, uh, yeah. We're going to have to do it we, again. As we talked in Fort Worth, uh, let's just let it go wherever it goes. And I find that the most interesting where you don't come in with any kind of ideas or agenda. You just goes where it goes. And uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it, Brian. Not just saying that to be nice either or whatever. <laughs> I, I mean, it, it was wonderful, wonderful conversation. But- I enjoyed you too, Fred. And once again, thanks for joining me. Gang, y'all have a great week.